cause our faith to rise, cause our hearts to see your majestic love and authority. That is a particularly appropriate prayer for us to sing to the Lord as we approach today's passage in Scripture. These words of power that will never fail, we're about to see their truth prevail over unbelief as demons flee, as the sick are healed, and as Jesus teaches with unparalleled authority. Please take your Bibles and turn to the very end of Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick up our journey through the glorious gospel of Luke in verse 31 of chapter 4. Again, Luke chapter 4, verse 31. If you're using our church Bible in the seat back in front of you, that's page 808. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. And we're going to pray before we look at God's word one more time that just that he would help us open our eyes to see and behold wonderful things in his word. Let's let's pray together. We ask again in earnest, Lord, that you would speak. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you now to receive the food of your holy word. Take this truth, God, your truth, and plant it deep in us. Shape us. Fashion us in your likeness. Lord, would you cause our faith to rise? Would you cause our eyes to see your majestic love, God, and your authority? Would you speak, O oh Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory? We pray these things for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Luke 4, beginning in verse 31. Let's round out the, uh, the passage here. And he, speaking of Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. Come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. They were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and, and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them. 
would not allow them to speak because he knew, they knew, excuse me, that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, here we see at the end of chapter 4 in Luke's gospel, we see in living color what Jesus told his hometown crowd last week about what he was here to do. If you take a gander back at the passages we read and covered just last week, verses 18 to to 21, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah the prophet, pointing to himself in this messianic uh, prophecy saying, Jubilee is here. I'm here to usher in the age of the Messiah. I'm here to heal the sick. I'm here to preach the good news to the poor, the gospel. I'm here to set the captives free. That's what he That's what he just said. And now here in verse 31, Jesus has gone from Nazareth down to Capernaum, still in the region of Galilee. Now, we've got a map. Again, for those of you who are visual and spatial, uh, and I even put a nifty arrow here, from Nazareth uh, in south-central Galilee. Again, Galilee is the northern region of the land of Palestine, Israel. Uh, And and so Nazareth is where Jesus grew up, and he's moving from his... uh, stirring but murderous sermon in his hometown where they try to push him off the cliff after his sermon to Capernaum where where really he sets up shop for a while and uses this as a base of ministry and uh, and much of his public ministry he's he's operating in this region of Galilee in Capernaum or Capernaum I'm going to switch back and forth between between pronunciations Uh, I do apologize if that throws you so so here we are right right on the edge of the sea of Galilee if that gives you a reference point And, and Jesus is teaching now There are some amazing things that are about to go down. We've read them. Amazing things like signs and wonders kind of stuff. But before we get there, I think it's very important for us not to lose the sense of wonder, the sense of awe and power that Luke, our our writer here, Dr. Luke, is taking great care to communicate to us before a single miracle, excuse me, takes place. This passage is laced with authority, laced with power, laced with punch, even before we get to the miracles. Look at verse 32. They, the people there at the synagogue in Capernaum, are astonished at his teaching. Why? Well, for his word possessed authority. People had simply never heard anything like this before in contrast to the typical teaching of his day where the scribes and the teachers of the law would would often merely parrot back to the people what other teachers believed the the law said or uh, a lot a lot of just quoting other men they're using men as their reference point for their authority jesus speaks in an altogether different manner remember here Jesus is not talking about God to people. Jesus is God. So 
as the eternally existent Son of God. Jesus is speaking for God and as God. And so, yeah, these people are astonished by his teaching, by the authority laced in to his teaching. Literally, I want you to see this, literally translated, that word astonished there in verse 32 can mean struck out of their senses. This was breaking categories. Just a few verses later in verse 36, we see a similar word. We got astonished, and then we've got in verse 36, amazed. The people are amazed. That word means to be in awe, to be utterly astonished, even to be in a stupor. Now, maybe this is helpful. To convey the level of wow that's happening here with Jesus' teaching, Luke actually uses the same word here in verse 36, this this amazed word. This is the same word he uses the very next chapter. Lord willing, we'll get to this next week in, in Luke 5 to describe Peter, you know, the fisherman's reaction to pulling up a catch of fish that is so big that it starts to sink his fishing boat. You know, the boat that's designed for fish. And so he waves to a bunch of partners. It's breaking his nets. It's sinking his boats. His partners, James and John, maybe you heard of them before, they, they come over and they start trying to help him pull in this huge catch of fish. By the way, he's been out all night catching nothing. Jesus, the non-fisherman, says, hey, why don't you try the other side of the boat? And he catches so many fish, their ships are sinking. And you know what the word he uses to describe that? Same word. Amazed. Same Greek word here. That kind of amazement is what's happening when people are hearing the words and the teaching, the authority of the Son of God. To borrow a phrase from the guards who are sent to arrest Jesus in John chapter 7 and then come back empty-handed, the... uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees are like, what the heck? I just sent, we sent you to arrest this guy. You come back empty-handed. Their, their response is in John 7, 46, no one ever spoke like this man. We, we didn't know what to do. We have never, ever heard. No one has ever spoken like this man is speaking. It's not just his miracles. It's the words of the Word made flesh that carry unparalleled authority. Let's, let's see that before we get, just go rushing off to the miracles. The miracles are amazing, and they authenticate who Jesus is and what He's come to do. But it's His words, His gospel, which contain life and salvation. Now, everyone, as a result of the teaching, Jesus here in the synagogues of Galilee, more specifically Capernaum here, is just trying to pick their jaws off the floor. They're awestruck, trying to get their bearings. Who is this guy? And as that's happening, we do encounter one individual, I guess you could say, at this Capernaum synagogue who does have a very clear understanding of what's going on. Look at verse 33. Who is it? Maybe not who you'd expect. Verse 33. By the way, we're making all of our points from the Bible. 
So, like, it'd be helpful if you had your Bible. I don't care how, if you're using your phones or your tablets or, or the Bibles in front of you, but have your Bible open to, to Luke 4, and, and we're just making all our points from there. Verse 33 of chapter 4. Who notices? Who is keyed into what's going on as everybody else is just drooling out of the corner of their mouth? It's the demon-possessed guy. Quick aside, it's interesting to know where the demon is where is he yeah he's in church that's where the demon is now <laughs> i'm kind of resisting the urge to to go off on a tangent that's not the point of the passage here but to be fair we don't know if this guy was a regular this demon possessed guy was a regular attender at this particular synagogue or if if he was there because of the presence of jesus and this is enemy encroaching upon the kingdom text doesn't tell us that much it's kind of fun to think about here's my question that the text does tell us what is the demon's very first word out of the mouth of this man Verse 34, the demon's very first word is, and different English translations will handle this differently. The word is, the ESV renders it in verse 34, ha! Now, admittedly, there's some debate about the best way to translate from Greek to English this, this expression that the demon gives. At the very least, this is a... An outburst of dismay. This evil spirit is having a visceral reaction to the presence of Jesus. This is not a good day for him. And he knows it. Which is why he asks, you're following him here? He asks a question to Jesus. Have you come to destroy us? The answer, of course, is yes. It's beyond my pay grade to figure out exactly how that destroying happens and when it takes place. But, but the Word of God tells us clearly in 1 John 3, 8. I've, we've got this up on the screen for you so you don't need to flip. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason why Jesus is here, was to destroy the works of the devil. Now there is manifold reasons for Jesus' presence, but this is a big one. This is a part of it. Jesus came to destroy, to dismantle the work of the evil one. And so the demon knows what he's talking about when he asks, is that why you're here? Is this, is this destruction time? I, I, didn't think, I didn't think it was coming this soon. Now, what the demon-possessed man says next, friends, is absolutely fascinating. Look at verse 34. He says, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. I know you. You're the Holy One of God. Now, and we ought to stop here to say, it is amazing how theologically on point this demon is. <laughs> and it was going to take the disciples a whole lot longer to figure this out. Do you agree? And yet, in the spiritual realm, the enemy knows exactly what's going on. Sophomed said that there is a difference between a profession of faith and possession of faith. 
You hear that? You see the difference? There's a difference between professing faith with your mouth and possessing faith. Owning it. Real, saving faith. And that's what's happening here. This demon is the most theologically astute one in the room. He knows who Jesus is. He knows why Jesus is here. He's like Asen, the Bible knowledge quiz. And yet he's... He is not on very solid ground right now. Would you agree? Remember, just a chapter or so ago in Luke's gospel, we saw Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness, and he's using what to do it? The Bible. Friends, Satan is quite a theologian, and his hordes know their scripture better than you or me. The demons have excellent theology, and here we see this evil spirit, this unclean spirit, artic- art- excuse me, articulating, easy for me to say, articulating true things about Jesus. Here's at least part of the point. Saying or knowing, understanding true things about Jesus is not enough. It is very important that you understand the gospel. It is critically important that you know the truth. It'll set you free. But understanding the truth in your like frontal lobe is not sufficient for salvation. We we know that I, I hope we know this. It's so important that we that we understand. That the way that our standing before God got nothing to do with our robust theology or Bible knowledge has everything to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the miracle of Him taking a dead, stony heart and making it beat by covering it with His blood. Knowing the truth isn't enough. Which is why... I want to tread carefully here. Which is why, when you're talking with your kids, parents, grandparents, when you're talking about salvation, when you're sharing the gospel, it is not sufficient for you, said Christian, to speak the gospel to somebody and ask them, do you believe that? As if an uh uh-huh... As if just understanding in your mind or even saying it, articulating it, makes the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Did it make the difference for the demon? James agrees. James 2, 19. You believe that God is one? That He's the eternally existent triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that God is one? Good. You want a cookie? Even the demons believe that and shudder. What's Jesus' response? The demon knows exactly what's going on here. How does Jesus respond to him? Well, Jesus is having none of this. Suffice it to say, Jesus does not want or need this kind of publicity. Now, 
We're going to hit this a little bit harder later on because we'll, we'll see this happen again. Yeah, I think you saw it once. Not only does the demon in the synagogue at Capernaum declare that Jesus is God, we see it happening again in Peter's house as crowds, throngs of people are coming and many demons are being cast out and they're all testifying to the lordship of Christ the Son. You are the Son of God. They like say as they're scampering away. Elephant in the room question is, why does Jesus silence and rebuke them? I mean, there's, isn't that true? Isn't he the Holy One of God? Isn't he the Son of God? I mean, doesn't he want people to know this? Why the rebuke? Why the silence? Why do we see this on repeat throughout all the Gospels? Well, that's a big question, and we're, we're going to handle that later. Right now, what I simply want us to see is, is in the text here, Jesus' actual response. I want us to just look, look in our Bibles here. Look at verse 35. See how Jesus responds. And we'll circle back to that big, hairy question when we hit the, the bigger casting out of demons, the bigger exorcism later. Verse 35, what's Jesus say? He gives this demon two commands, two imperatives. Right there in verse, th- what, what are they? I love it when you're looking at your Bibles. That's where the answers are. The commands are, be silent, come out. Now, that fr- I'd, I'd love this. That phrase, be silent, the English kind of cleans it up a little bit. In Greek, literally that phrase, that phrase means, be muzzled, which is an epic comeback. You got to admit, right? I think I want to like incorporate that in my area. Be muzzled. Be muzzled. I like how the one professor, one biblical professor, Bob Utley, paraphrases Jesus' rebuke here to the demon. Basically what he's saying is, shut up and get out. That's it. I mean, exorcism was and is quite an elaborate ritual. Takes a lot of time. There's a lot of stuff you got to do. A lot of hocus pocus, and and then at the end, there's no guarantee of the results. Jesus says two things: quiet out, and the demon has no choice. He's gone. Friends, that ended the conversation right there. Now, just as an aside, and as an interesting aside, the demon throws the man down. He's an enemy but he comes out without doing him any harm, which is not always how this goes down. More on that a later day, maybe. Anyhow, Dr. Luke turns his attention next to the people's response. Can you imagine just watching this happen? Verse 37, the news of this event spreads like wildfire. Look at the text. And reports about him, reports about Jesus went out into every place in the surrounding region. No kidding. Wouldn't you be chattering about this? I love this. The, the actual word, the Greek word here for the reports about him is our English word echo. That's what, it, that's what, that's what the word is. It's the Greek word echo. So quite literally, what Dr. Luke is telling us is that news of Jesus echoed throughout the surrounding region. Isn't that cool? Led by the Holy Spirit, Luke 
takes us in his gospel from the very, this very specific, very particular account of delivering a singular man from a demon to a very specific, very particular account of healing someone who's sick. We're starting with the micro. We'll see that shift in just a moment. Pick it up in verse 38. Luke, who, remember now, is, is a doctor, starts to describe this woman's medical condition. I, I, he can't help himself. She is, verse 38, ill with a high fever. Now, now that, that terminology, high fever, is actually a, a medical term used at the time for a very dangerous high fever. And in the first century, remember now, without the common grace benefit of modern medicines and technologies, you had a really high fever like this, things could get pretty desperate. Note that Jesus' healing of Simon's mother-in-law, like little asterisks, Peter was married, right? Peter, Simon, Peter, that's who we're talking about here. Peter, Peter was married. This is his family. Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' presence bubbles out of the apostles and there so it spills over in every arena of life peter's mother-in-law is healed and note how healing here is immediate and it is complete i mean this is amazing she just hops up and starts serving them as if she wasn't knocking on death's door with a with burning up with a high fever there's nothing gradual about this i don't know about you but if i've had a hard day or if i'm coming off a sickness you kind of like ease back into things no, no, no. Jesus' healing here is boom, 100%. She is immediately back to her normal self. And what a beautiful image of what happens when you're touched by Christ. The response is to serve him and his people. That'll preach, but we've got to move on. All right. News of this as well, both the casting out of the demon and the healing, spreads like wildfire. And um, the response as well is just as robust. It's just, uh, it's just as comprehensive. The point that we've got to see, the point we just can't possibly miss here, and we see it all throughout Luke's gospel, all throughout the gospels at large, is Jesus' authority. Jesus has authority over the spirits and the spiritual realm. Jesus has authority over the body, over the physical realm. And, please don't miss this, there is a distinction made in verse 35 and verse 39 between the problems at hand. Look at the language, verse 35. He rebuked the demon. Now jump down to verse 39. He, what word? Rebuked the what? The fever. No demon involved in the fever see where i'm going with this let's press the pause button for a minute and come up for air we need to talk about some application because in our world today there is all kinds of confusion about the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare and how pervasive or not it happens to be and there tends to be two ways for us as followers of Jesus, to err. Two ways for us to fall off the road. There's a ditch on either side of the road. One way is for us to see a demon 
under every rock, behind every tree. Every time you lose your keys, a demon did it. Every time you stub your toe, it's the demon of clumsiness or whatever. That's one way to fall off the road. So hyper-spiritualized, I don't like that term, but I think you get what I mean, things, where you are ascribing to the demonic, you are ascribing to the spiritual realm things that, quite frankly, are beyond your pay grade, and you have no idea that that's really what's going on there. That's, that's one real problem. Overemphasizing, inflating everything is demonic. Everything is supernatural. Now, I would say that's the less frequent of the two errors here in our society, in our modern context. The other one, of course, is that we run the risk of dismissing the spiritual dimension altogether. It's amazing what, air quotes, science will do. It's amazing how we can explain things away. Remind, remind of that time in the Gospels when God speaks from, from heaven, the audible voice of God echoes, and people the people surrounding it who heard the voice give an explanation. It just was thunder, right? We can do that. We often do that. We're so dismissive of the spiritual realm that we forget. Friends, it's not like these demons who are everywhere, by the way, in the Gospels, would you agree? Casting out demons constantly. The, the spiritual warfare presence is just palpable. As you're reading through the Gospels, it's not like they evaporated. I mean, where are they? Well, they're here. The devil's still at work. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 6, 12 tells us that this is our primary battle. This is really who's coming for us. It's the spiritual realm. It's the principalities and powers of this evil age. Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, we would be foolish and ignorant to ignore the reality of very real warfare. We are at war, and souls are at stake. And we would also be foolish to attribute every inconvenience, every sickness, every hardship that we experience to the demonic. Now, um, I think a more appropriate, so you ask yourself the question, so what do we do about it, right? They're there, like, what do we do? Well, one thing that you do about it is you don't outkick your coverage. You don't attribute something to something in the heavenly realm that you really can't see, that you really don't know. You end up messing with stuff that is very deep and powerful that you ought not to be dabbling in or with. So, don't jump either, listen, either to dismiss the fact that there's a spiritual component to what's going on or to confirm it unless there's very real, solid, biblical basis for doing so. Okay, 
More on that another day. Let's, let's keep marching through the text here. Verse, verse 40 and 41. We see at this point in time, a major shift happened in the scope of the narrative here in Luke 4. There's a shift, there's a move from the specific, from the micro to zoom out, and now we're seeing the same things at play, only we're seeing them develop on a macro scale. Luke signals this change, look at verse 40, he signals this change with the phrase, when the sun was setting. You say, okay, Zeb, why was that important, that the sun was setting? La-di-da. Well, the sun was setting signals the end of the Sabbath day. Now, you remember, if you read your Old Testament, the Jewish Sabbath was on sundown, was from sundown on Friday to sundown on, on, on the Sabbath, the sundown on Saturday. So here's what this means. When Luke is saying, when the sun was setting, he's signaling the Sabbath is over, the Sabbath is ending, which now means people can travel, which now means people can carry the sick, and they do, <laughs> do they ever. They start carrying the sick in from all over the place. And Jesus, here in Peter's living room, heals every single one. Now, we, get, we go a lot of different uh, directions here. I think it's amazing to see the compassion of Jesus. I mean, he, he created the cosmos with his words. He can heal however. He could have just spoken the world and healed the whole lot, right? But what's he? he's putting his hands. See the intimacy? See the personal touch here? The putting his hands on the sick. And there is not one evil power. There is not one sickness, however significant, that can best him. Note that Jesus is God over the particular, over that one demon in that one synagogue, and over. Peter's mother, he's God over the particular, and he's God over the general, the micro and the macro. And again, we'll pause before we continue here, just because I think there's some application at work in this biblical principle. Here's what I mean. Some of us tend to see God as cosmic. We tend to see God as the creator, the, uh, the, the big sovereign God of heaven and earth, you would be right. But if that's the only way you see God, see what happens is your theology and, and the way you walk out your relationship with Christ ends up being a bit lopsided. Some of us tend to see God as high and holy, true, but we fail, we fail to see that this high and holy God has stooped down. He has condescended. He has took on flesh and, and he humbled himself to relate with his rebellious, stiff-necked people. Here is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, the co-creator of all things. He's laying his hand on people one at a time. He's moved to compassion for the pain of people. We've got to see this, folks. We've got to see that God is high. He's holy. He's cosmic. And he's personal. He's intimately involved. He knows every cell in your body, and he sovereignly superintends over it all. 
Now, some of us have the opposite problem, don't we? Some of us get real cuddly with Abba God, Abba Father. I want to like throw up a little bit in my mouth when I hear people pray like that. Just, I'm sorry, I need to repent sometimes. Why, Zeb, why? Well, because there is, there's a way to overinflate that truth where all God is is intimate and personal. And the only thing God wants to do is affirm you in love without any regard for holiness, His standards. He is personal and He is sovereign. And we ought not to forget either. Because when we do, we end up with a caricature of God. Some of us need to remember. That one day we will stand before him. We will give an account. The God who knows every word that's on our tongue before it's there. Every thought in our mind. Alright, I think you get it. Let me, so what do we do, Zeb? What do we do? Here, here's the simple thing to do. If you would confess in your heart, okay, I tend to do one or the other. I tend to think about God and my personal world and it's really all about me. And perhaps I need reminders that he's high and holy or, or perhaps on the other end, I tend to see him as big. He can heal other people. He can work in other people's life, but not me, not, not, not my life. I'm just a hot mess. Well, here's two verses that can just get you started. Here's one thing I think you ought to do. Memorize scripture to round out your theology of God, just to give you reminders when you're tempted to see God as only personal, when you're tempted to see God as only cosmic. If you struggle in seeing him mostly as all about you in the micro, or you need reminders of that, go read Luke 12, 7. You can pick a number of verses. This one says, why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. I would wager to say, unless you've got my problem, you have no idea the own number of hairs on your head. God knows you better than you know you. God is intimately involved in your follicles, for crying out loud. He loves, he sees, he knows Write this one on your heart, Luke 12, 7. If, if sometimes you see him, he can work in other people, but not, not me, not me. Commit Luke 12, 7 to, mem to memory, and remember, he's the God of the micro. Now, if you, you tend to get too snuggly too often, and if your theology is a little bit lopsided that way, maybe you should remember Romans 11, 33 to 36. I'm just going to read it for you. I'm just, you can jot down the reference, or go find it. There's lots of comparable verses. Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Listen, how unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable, how unknowable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. I don't know how you can read your Bible like that. And be tempted to make it about you. He's both. He's the God of the micro. 
is the God of the macro. Let's not walk away with a lopsided view of him. And I think Luke very intentionally here is focused on the specific casting out of a demon from a person healing a sickness, and then he zooms out, and it's just in mass. It's a good reminder for us. All right. Let's hit this big, hairy question about Jesus silencing the theologically astute demons. Verse 41. Demons came out of many there at Simon's home that evening, and they say correctly, you are the Son of God. But Jesus, <laughs> Jesus shuts them up. Jesus won't allow them to speak. Now, what's up with that? I mean, isn't he the Son of God? Doesn't he want people to know that he's the Son of God? Yes and yes. It's not that Jesus is always into hiding his identity. He had come to reveal himself to the world. Remember last week, he just, just flip back a, a couple verses. He literally stood up in his hometown in Nazareth and quoted a messianic prophecy out of Isaiah 61 and said, it's about me. I'm here. I've come to bring Jubilee. I'm the Messiah. So, so why now, when the demons are saying it, is, is he refusing to let the word out? What's going on here? Well, Jesus is intent on people knowing who he is, but it's got to be done on his terms, not Satan's. That's the big deal here. It's got to be his terms. It's got to be his timing. It's got to be his way. And Jesus is making it abundantly clear here that he has the authority to pull off his heaven-sent mission. He doesn't need any help from Satan or his minions. It's always, by the way, Jesus' mission always lockstep with the will of the Father, always in keeping with the Father's plan and purpose. Jesus will have no publicity, no help, no alignment from Satan whatsoever. After all, isn't this what Jesus' enemies tried to turn against him later in his ministry? Just a moment ago, Rodney was up here reading from Luke 11. When the scribes and the Pharisees tried to say about Jesus, See? He's lined up with Satan, with Beelzebul, the, the prince of demons. The reason why he has authority over these demons is because he's in league with the prince of them. Jesus was going to have none of that. No room for that nonsense. And neither should his followers. We don't have time for this now, but I love that passage. Maybe you want to go look this up on your own this week. In, in uh, excuse me, Acts 16, where Paul is walking through the city of Philippi and a slave girl who's demon-possessed, got the spirit of divination, is following behind him saying true things about him. I mean, it's, it's beautiful if you just, the words that this girl is saying about it. These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Isn't that beautiful? You like, write that on my tombstone, I'd be happy. And Paul's like, uh-uh. Not happening. Taking this cue from Jesus now. Casts out that demon and it. It's a fun story from there. Acts 16. Let's get to application. Here's, here's what this means for us, at least in part. 
Friends, there is such a right, or there is such a thing, excuse me, such a thing as the right thing at the wrong time. Isn't there? There is such a thing as the right thing at the wrong time or in the wrong way. And I'll give you just at the end here a, a little illustration from, from my knuckleheaded life. Here's a picture of our eldest son, Asher. He's a couple years younger then. It's a nice rainbow trout, huh? I, I fish because it helps with my sermons. That's what I tell Lindsay. You guys aren't buying it either, are you? All right. I'll work on it. So Asher uh, and I, we were, we were just getting used to the fishing scene here in, in, uh, in PA, and I didn't know the first thing about trout fishing or, or where, where to go a few years back. And so we, we were out fishing, and we didn't realize here that they stock trout in some of these streams. And it was about this time of year in March... You know, when they dump thousands of dollars into stocking fish, really nice ones into the local streams and rivers. And we were, uh, we, we were going out trying to fish for some bass. We had no idea what we were doing, no consideration to the timing. We had a fishing license, but we didn't really, we were ignorant of the law. And we're in Mingo Creek. And Asher's walking by, he said, Dad, there's like goldfish-sized fish swimming. Like they're trout, but they're like goldfish swimming. I was like, whatever. And then I, he's right. And so we pulled aside here, and there's these big trout. They'd just been stocked like a week or two ago. So we're like out of our minds, right? We're scrambling, and we're, we're fishing in the hole. And we, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, right? He's just like yanking out these beautiful fish one after another. We're like, we hit the jackpot. And I'm like taking pictures. And some very kind old man, after about five minutes, comes by and he says, uh, hey, you might want to stop that. He said, the game wardens are watching all over this area, and this is illegal. Like, the season doesn't start till April 1st. And if they catch you doing this, you are in a world of trouble. Now, I've got my two oldest sons, Asher here, uh, who's having a time of his life, and Noah, we're breaking the law. It was funny on the way back. So I mean, we, we, we genuinely didn't know what we were doing was wrong. And so we're like, put the fish back. And we get in our car real quick. And we're driving out of Mingo. And, and got, Noah is just crying. He's, he's like, we're going to jail. We're going to jail. It's the difference between my two sons. What's the point? Friends, there's such a thing as the right thing at the wrong time in the wrong way. If we were doing the same exact thing with the same exact bait in the same exact place a couple weeks later, this is awesome. Put it on social media. Don't you do this now. That's an illegal fish because there's such a thing as the right thing at the wrong time in the wrong way. You get what's happening here? Jesus will share no publicity with Satan and it's his timing by which he reveals his lordship in his way. Last thing, we're, we're drawing this thing to a close. Look at verse 42. The people, understandably, don't want this good stuff to stop. Verse 42, they try to stop Jesus from leaving. He goes out to a desolate place. Mark's gospel tells us he's actually going out to pray but he's not coming back. He's preparing to leave Capernaum here, and the people go out to stop him. 
They wanted him to stay, for this healing to continue, wouldn't you? For this deliverance to continue, for this remarkable teaching with power to continue. So Jesus sets up shop in Capernaum and builds a bigger building and establishes a long-term ministry with a radio component. No. No. Jesus is laser-focused on his kingdom mission. And it's his Father's will, it's his mission, which is driving him at all times. What's the mission? He says it in verse 42. His mission is to preach the good news. That's the word gospel, euangelion, to preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom elsewhere also. Friends, that's why he came. Jesus says in verse 43, I was sent for this purpose. The main emphasis, hear this as we close, the main emphasis on Jesus' ministry was was on preaching, not healing. Yes, he did many miracles. Yes, he had compassion and healed many people. But these mighty works were not the point. Jesus didn't come as some sort of magician to wow people. He came to proclaim the gospel. To proclaim the good news that the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here. The king has arrived and I am he. The gospel that it's time for the slaves of the kingdom of darkness to become sons of the kingdom of light. And he would not be swayed from that mission. Aren't you glad?